This is April 2012. Session, last talk, whole and complete, lacking nothing. Um, this week, Chosen is in uh, Denver at a conference uh, called the International Symposium for the Study of Contemplative Science, something like that. And <clears throat> it's a uh, research-based conference. Uh, and there's, of course, a lot of focus on mindfulness and all the research around mindfulness right now. She's presenting uh, mindful eating with, uh, uh, in, a, in a session, uh, John Kabat-Zinn is the, the moderator for that session, and an old person we've known for a long time. And John uh, Kabat-Zinn is a, uh, he's a founder of the mindfulness-based stress reduction. He's a researcher. He's really a, just a wonderful person. And he told her a story that in somewhere around 1970 or so, he was at MIT as an undergraduate. And he happened to find himself to stumble upon a talk. And there were only five people present there. And it was a guest speaker and that speaker was uh, Roshi Philip Kaplow. And he said that <clears throat> Roshi Kaplow's comments and talk in this, this short meeting struck him so deeply that he began doing Zazen from that time until today. Now, I can imagine from Roshi Kaplow's vantage point, you know, he goes to a famous institution like MIT, only five people show up. He sort of thinks, well, you know, that's the way it is, and doesn't really think much about it. But but if we look at just the impact of that one conversation, that one interaction had, really on all of society, it is enormous because... John went on, did his graduate work, began investigating mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts, developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, and then, of course, it has just burgeoned and, and blossomed into many different aspects. And mindfulness is a really hot research topic right now, which is going to affect our culture. So we don't know what our Zazen will do. We don't know what these incidental meetings are going to lead to. We don't know what the chain of cause and effect that comes out of something even seemingly innocuous as a small talk to five people might lead to. We do know that when here at Sashen, if we have a calm mind, and we have a high aspiration, we're living ethically, we're frugal, we have good intentions, we're really present, then that is the foundation of faith, that what we will do in some mysterious way, in some way we cannot even imagine, in some way that we are not privy to, and perhaps never will be, that those things that we have set into motion, those things that we have been uh, 
practicing will ripple out and have an effect. It is because of this truth that we do not know. We do not know what the effect of our practice is going to be. We do not know whether a particular meaning will be significant or not significant for the world, for our lives, the lives of our family. Because we do not know, we then bring the mind state of Zazen. We bring the clearest, calmest, most present mind state we can into each circumstance. And then, of course, each circumstance will call forth something in us if we're not cloudy. It doesn't always call forth the same thing. So as we are doing session, part of what we're doing is learning how to know and to carry the Zazen state of mind. The mind of being present, alert, engaged. The mind that is not lost in past and future. The mind that is alive, awake, right here, right now. And whether we have some particular experience or other that we would like to have or think we would like to have, isn't so important as carrying on practice and continuing to carry practice on, who knows what effect it will have. Another thing uh, Chosen told me was um, at this conference, there, there were 700 people who had to cap the conference. So many people wanted to come from the United States and really around the world. And they were very high, highly educated people. It was not a, uh, as part of, I think, a, a branch off of the Mind and Life series that was uh, the Dalai Lama began with scientists. So these were lots of scientists, researchers, people who had written books, uh, some high-level practitioners um, were all there. And mindfulness is the, the hot topic. One thing that is this conference showed her, kind of reported, no surprise, is that the research clearly shows over and over and over again that mindfulness meditation and being present is beneficial on many levels. It doesn't really even matter what we think about it. The very fact that we are doing our best to be present with attention has effects that are beneficent. And there's lots of studies that show it's helpful for mental health, it's helpful for heart, uh, health of the heart, the immune system, the plasticity of the brain actually changes, the brain actually changes its structure as you practice. One thing she noted was that lots of people are interested in the joy of mindfulness, which in our culture, as we all know, people immediately seize on, thinking, how can I maximize the joy of mindfulness so I can sell more, so I can get people to buy more of my product? And 
for people who are a little more altruistic, you know, to maximize the joy of mindfulness means how can we encourage people to start and then continue to practice? Which is an admirable, an admirable um, intention. We all know, though, that no matter how much marketing or how much hope research, how much hope there is, or how research happens to spin its particular goals, that things come in pairs. Easy, hard, up, down, pleasurable, unpleasurable, fame, infamy, loss and gain. They come in pairs, so there is a slight hope that if we can do mindfulness just right, we'll be able to just get the half of the pair that we like and let the other half go. And so we can do mindfulness and just just carve out that chunk that is pleasurable. I don't think that's going to happen. What is the case is the... uh, I always come back to St. John of the Cross at this particular point. St. John of the Cross says, when you start off here a spiritual practice, and you start off with great clarity and faith, then there is a blissful period of time when things are going along smoothly and you're feeling the, in his terms, the grace of God, you're feeling the, the love of God. And we often see that with people who first come into practice in our tradition, first come to Seshen, there's a fire and a, let's go get it and let's really practice and let's bore through and a slight feeling of, well, I don't know what's the matter with all you guys, but I can do this. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, not uncommon. But then, as St. John says, um, that at some point, the child is put down from its mother's breast, made to walk on its own two feet, and has to eat hard food. And at some point, the reality of life has to be met. And our meditative practice has to embrace both sides. Our spiritual life has to embrace both sides. It has to embrace the pleasurable, the easy, the bright, the clear. And it has to be able to also embrace the not-so-pleasant, not-so-easy, not-so-bright, not-so-clear. It's all part of the same practice. It's all part of the same life. And, of course, what we see is when people come and they're into practice here and they're, they're vital and they're really energized and they're just gung-ho, and, and if they keep practicing, of course, that changes. Not everything changes. Of course, that changes. But it begins changing as they begin maturing and as they, they begin to ha- expand their capacity. It begins changing as they deepen their capacity and realize, oh, maybe life is a little more rich than it seemed like at first. Maybe there's a little more to this than it seemed like at first. As we practice, you know, in the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness is only the first of the seven factors. 
there are seven more factors that you first pay attention, and you get interested, you get curious, and then you have some more energy that begins aroused, uh, being aroused, and then you emphasize concentration, and you look in deeply, and then you know gradually there is uh, wisdom, and gradually there is um, equanimity eventually, and it all comes. In some way, they lay it out as a, as a sequence of events. I think it's all one package. And it all is based upon, let's truly be present. Let's truly know this moment. Let's truly know that which is, in a way, bigger than pleasure and pain. That which is more reliable than fame and infamy. That which is more stable than loss and gain. So where how do we go into the place? In this world of ceaseless change, unending change, the changeless, the timeless, the boundless. How do we touch that? How do we know that right in the place where there is change in time and form? I mentioned a few days ago, there's one of the koans that says, there are no Zen teachers. That Zen cannot be taught. Zen Buddhism cannot be taught. If possible, when you're talking to people, if you can use Zen Buddhism, because the word Zen has been so um, polluted, it, you know, there's the, there are too many other kinds of Zen, of perfumes and cats and dogs and other things. <laughs> so Zen Buddhism is the, the place that really has a little bit of dignity still left to it. So there are no teachers of Zen Buddhism, not to say there is no Zen Buddhism. No, no, no one can teach us what the taste of a lychee fruit is like. Someone can prepare a table, talk about the fruit, show us how to remove the skin, even remove the skin for us. But each of us has to taste it. Each of us has to taste it, has to actually put it in our mouth to see what a lychee is really like. The same is true with our lives. Nobody, nobody knows what this life is like. Nobody. And it's up to us to taste it deeply. Nobody knows what your breath feels like. Nobody possibly could know. We make a lot of assumptions, of course. And words cannot describe our personal experience. The experience is too intimate. If we're talking about eating something like lychee, words cannot describe the complete experience of that. Words cannot describe 
the experience of eating. And yet, we all know what that is. Because we have tasted it. Because we've done it. So with Zazen, it's the same way. No matter what is said about it, no matter what is said about the practice of Zen, no matter what is said about our lives, it's just words. And the whole point of the words is to encourage or cajole, inspire each person to look very carefully at the one place that they know more intimately than anyone else in the whole universe. The universe is expert on this breath and body. The universe is expert on the experience of this breath and body before the stories we make up about it. Having our eye open and that awareness of right here, right here, this experience right here, right here. Not ignoring the content, but looking always at what is present. It says iconographically, uh, the pictures of Bodhidharma, founder of Zen Buddhism in China, one of our ancestors, when he's depicted iconographically, he's depicted with no eyelids. And it said that, you know, his eyelids fell off because he sat for so many years. But really, that just means that he's awake. That his mind of practice is awake. He's alert. And we don't have to be bug-eyed like Bodhidharma to be alert. But we can not lose the awareness, just like Bodhidharma. We too have a Buddha eye, no location, not inside, outside, or in between. And yet it is always open if we just turn our attention to it. So the teaching about breath, about sight, is you are sitting here and you just take the view that the breath is always here. Time is always here. But the waves of breath go in and out on the surface. We just take the view that this present moment is always here. We just are aware of that. And the events, of course, are just waves on top of that. This one limits every analogy, but that's one way of looking at it. This is what uh, Sri uh, Maharaj Nisargadatta says, the famous uh, Hindu teacher. Somebody asks him, You keep on saying that I was never born and will never die. If so, how is it that I see the world as one which has been born and will surely die? Maharaji says, 
You believe this because you have never questioned your belief that you are the body, which obviously is born and dies. While alive, it attracts attention and fascinates so completely that rarely do you perceive your real nature. It's like seeing the surface of the ocean and completely forgetting the immensity beneath. The world is but the surface of the mind. The mind is infinite. What we call thoughts are just ripples in the infinite mind. We know the quiet place, and it reflects reality. When it's motionless through and through, it dissolves, and only reality remains. The reality is so concrete so actual, so much more tangible than what we think of as our mind and body, mind and matter. He's using mind in two different ways here. He's talking about the universal mind, kind of capital mind, and he's talking about the small personal mind, the, the mind of feelings and thoughts. It is so much more tangible that compared to this universal mind, even a diamond is softer than butter. This overwhelming actuality makes the world dreamlike, misty. When we hold this view that the breath is always present, and it just happens to have these waves of going in and out, The time is always present, and there just happens to be waves of past and future floating on the surface. And we hold our mind's eye. Not as though there is someone who is holding that view, but to just hold that view. There are thoughts with no thinker. There's a view with no viewer. So to hold that view, to know that view, is all that's required. Continuing, the questioner says, what you say reminds me of the Dharmakaya of the Buddha. You know, in, in Buddhism we talk about the three bodies of Buddha we chanted during the meal chants, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, the Nirmanakaya. The Nirmanakaya is the form, form of things, the form of the Buddha, the Buddha's body. The Sambhogakaya, they say, is the, the awakening experience, the bliss body, the, the, the point of transition between uh, the uh, particulateness of our regular life and the boundlessness of the Dharmakaya, which is true nature, boundless, empty, still. Maharaji says, well, maybe. But we need not run off with terminology. Just see the person you imagine yourself to be as a part of the world you perceive within your own mind. And look at the mind from the outside, for you are not the mind. One practice in Vajrayana Buddhism, which I'm not suggesting people do at this point of a session, but just to let you know, is that you hold the view that it's all my life, my body, and in that view there is this thing. You imagine this body-mind. You imagine it happening. 
way it's what we do anyhow. So we just hold, the, the view is held. The mind is boundless, vast. Everything's in it. He continues, after all, your only problem is the eager self-identification with whatever you perceive. Give up this habit. Remember, you are not what you perceive, as you're not the waves, in the sense that we tend to think of ourselves as being things. Use your power of alert aloofness. See yourself in all that lives, and your behavior will express your vision. Once you realize that there is nothing in this world which you can call your own, and you look on it from the outside as you look at a play on the stage or a picture on the screen, admiring and enjoying, but really unmoved. So he's shifting two ways. On one hand, he's saying, you know, be, be, hold the mind in this very, very vast way. It's all. It's all you. There is nothing else but your own life. There is nothing else but, but your own awareness, your own mind. And at the same time, he's saying, well, simultaneously, you have to not think that that is who you are. That, oh yeah, that's me, and grab a hold of it. That's me, and grab it again. And so from that perspective, to hold the mind in this large awareness without grabbing and thinking, ah, that's my true nature. That's me. As I think I, I think I quoted the Tanha Sutta in this session, the Tanha Sutra, said, the Buddha says, that which binds us, that which is a tangled web, that which is a, a skein of thread that, that blocks our understanding, is the view, I am this, I am that. So we take a, a big view, but if we start thinking, oh, that view is me, then we fall into another error. That's why if the mind is still, if we know the place the mind is still, the mind that is still is not actively saying, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And the mind that is still is the mind that is always present before words, which we all know intimately. Which is, in a way, our real life. As long as you imagine yourself to be something tangible and solid, a thing among things, actually existing in time and space, short-lived and vulnerable, naturally you will be anxious to survive and increase. But when you know yourself as beyond space and time, in contact with them only at the point of here and now, otherwise all-pervading and all-containing, unapproachable, unassailable, invulnerable, you will be afraid no longer. Know yourself as you truly are, Against fear, there is no other remedy. Against fear, there is no other remedy. When we are doing zazen, we learn, however it is we do, whatever inadequate way we do it, we learn to keep the mind's awareness 
right in the place where the mind's awareness always is, and not let ourselves spiral off into thinking about things, then in that place, there's no fear. There's no anxiety. Fear and anxiety is anticipation of the future. It's regret and worry about the past, which, of course, are still held in the present. So the practice of Sashen is to sit, you know, tight, loose, floppy, unfloppy, however you sit, you know, but to be present. And when we are present, then all the extra anxiety and burden and worry that we are carrying around so much is at least lightened. And then, of course, we have to deal with the realities of, of money and maintenance and relationship. But to have a taste of the unburdened essence of our own being, to have a taste of that, that we are not bound, lightens the burden. And to see it more deeply we see that, the freer we are. Fundamentally, we're always free. Fundamentally, we are not these things. So we do zazen. We do zazen out of aspiration for awakening. We do zazen out of the intention to be a benefit to others. We do zazen to see through fear. We do zazen to rest in reality. We do zazen, we come to session, we quiet the mind, and we look into the nature of things. And this directly helps other people. We often will think about when we're doing zazen, we're doing, we're working on some practice, we often think, I'll put myself in their shoes. I'll understand things from their vantage point, which is wonderful. It's an essential part of some koan work to be able to do that. But the other is also true, that we have to put everybody else in our shoes. It's not as though there is a the, us, and a them. That this practice of one thing is not, I will see it that way, but others, through us, will see it. I will be liberated myself, and in liberating myself, others will be liberated. But when others are liberated, I am too. They're not two things. We tend to think of our mind as being the source of the one mind. But other minds are the source of our mind too. So when we're working on some kinds of cons, it's very important that we are really seeing this from a big viewpoint. Sometimes we see it from the viewpoint of there are no beings. Sometimes we see it from the viewpoint of there is a you and me. Sometimes we see it from the viewpoint of I am 
the whole world. Sometimes we see it from the viewpoint of the whole world. I am just a little figment of. And of course, they have to be expressed in all those different ways. So back to Zazen. Zazen is intimately connected with time. Our ordinary way of understanding time is, of course, you know, we start and, you know, sort of talk and 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 end. We start a period and time goes by and it ends. We wake up in the morning and things go by and things happen and it ends. It's a normal sequencing of time. It's very helpful in order to get to places on time. It's very helpful if we're going to try to meet somebody to have that real clear understanding of time and how it works. But that is not the kind of time of Zazen. So let's do some practice here with Zazen as time. So, while you're sitting right now, take just a moment, however you can do it, and let the mind stop. Maybe slow down. Feel your breathing. Now, watching carefully, count very slowly from one to ten, and the place to watch is where does the number arise. So the mind is calm, and then we say one. And you watch, where does that one arise from? You do that up to ten. And when you have done that, go back with the same exercise and look very carefully. Does the one emerge, kind of slowly come into being, or does it come into being complete one? Or is there sort of a one? Just look at your own experience, your own mind, as you slowly count and slowly watch those numbers.
No, if we were in a different format, we would have a discussion about what actually you observed. But that's not appropriate right now. So noting what you observed directly for yourself about this process of emergence. Now like another experiment. So imagine in your mind a striped red rabbit. Or if that's hard, imagine a blue person. And hold that image in your mind as long as you can. Now carefully watch where does it go. What happens to it? And then do it again. Do it a few times. Strong image in your mind. Watch it carefully. Where does it go? Or how does it go? And note for yourself, do you just happen to blink and forget about it? Does it fade away? Does it just, even while you're watching it, pop out of existence? Just watch carefully and observe your own internal experience. Vivid image. Hold it. What happens? Now, I propose that you cannot see a place that it comes from or goes to. And yet, there it is. I propose that probably some way it comes into the mind, some mysterious way, and probably in some mysterious way it disappears. Let's try a third one. This time, get a mental picture of yourself. A mental picture of yourself in all your glory, looking good, shining and bright. And hold it in your mind. Make sure it's a bright, good-looking one. And... Look carefully. Where is this held? Where in the mind is this image? And then see if it's possible to hold that image without changing. Or perhaps you notice that you have to keep applying makeup to it in order to keep the image there. Keep buffing it up a little bit. But if you can, just hold the image just as it is. Of you and all your beauty. Look directly at it. 
and watch carefully where it goes. This is a Vajrayana way of looking at this. It says, in order to dispel delusion, or he says, now the way to do the analysis when coming under the influence of false-seeming nature or entity is as follows. First, you look carefully, where does the first mind moment arise? Like we just did. So we have someone who is giving us problems, or perhaps even we're sitting in Sashen and there is great doubt, criticism, you know, whatever. We look at the first mind moment when that arises. Even a story, we have this big story about our practice and our life. Okay, that's fine. We look at the first mind moment in this moment, of course. Where does that story arise? an image, an image of myself as a decrepit old person. Well, in this mind moment, where does that image arise? Yeah, I'm a failure. In this mind moment, where does that image arise? I'm not getting what I want. In this mind moment, where does that notion arise? Secondly, where does it stay? We have some assessment about our life and our practice. And we watch, where does it arise from? Well, then, next we watch, well, where is it right now? Right now. Right this moment. It's just for for an example, which is not the case to most of you, but let's just for an example say, I feel like a miserable failure. Okay, great, that's what it is. But in this moment, right here, right now, in this tangible instant of mind, where is that? Where is it held? And then thirdly, any notion we have about ourselves comes and goes. Well, when it goes, where does it go? Same question. This is the Tibetan formula for dispelling delusion. And it is dispelling the delusion and confusion about time. Does time arise? Does time exist? Does time disappear? Does the past arise? Does the past exist? Does the past disappear? Does now arise, exist, disappear? Does the future arise, exist, disappear? This is all, you know, the intellectual mind can get a hold of all this, but it really is about looking, 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 looking. The Vajrayana teaching continues, use the above sayings in such a way that all the appearing phenomena of samsara and see that they don't dissolve anywhere. 
and they are not artificially produced anywhere either. That is, things actually, if we look at them carefully, it's hard to say they came into being or they didn't come into being. It's hard to say they went anywhere or they didn't go anywhere. If we're looking directly at the experience, if we can't actually see an experience in this moment, and it's ephemeral and ungraspable and vague, where does that ephemeral, ungraspable, vague notion, idea, image arise from? Where does an ephemeral, ungraspable, vague notion, where does a ghost go to? And see for yourself, there is no arising that depends on the past. There is no intention that depends on the future. There is no recognition that depends on the present. Then you understand it to be free from beginning to end. Excuse me, free of any beginning or end. When it's always here, what stops? When it does not arise or pass away, what stays? So we look at time, and we think, okay, where is the beginning of time? And of course, we, it's sort of a kind of a strange question, because how do we even have the idea of the beginning of time? What can we know about the beginning of time? Where does the beginning of our particular time, where does the beginning of this moment of time rise? Anyway, that's kind of a crazy question, too. Well, how do we say it arises at any moment? Or if we try to put our finger on what is time, of course, as we all know, it's pretty hard to put your finger on that. It's pretty hard to, to really say, oh, this slice right here is the experience of time. And then, of course, as we all know, the future doesn't exist anyhow. So we don't have to worry about where the future went. Never arose yet. And of course, We all know the past, as soon as it's gone, it really is gone. Nothing left. And all we're left with is this tiny slice of now, which has no dimension. When we are doing Zazen, and we let go of our mind that has got this big three-dimensional construct, and take it as real, and really our present, right now, no past, no present, no future, nothing but the boundless mind, which happens to talk and eat and do all that other stuff that we do. It says, only in this way do you see the real entity of the unelaborated, the unelaborated mind, that is, We have the experience moment after moment and we don't elaborate on it. We don't elaborate past and future. We don't elaborate coming or going. We don't elaborate being or not being. If we're not busy elaborating this moment, analyzing it, we're not busy judging it, criticizing it, then this moment, just this moment, but it's a little ephemeral. It is this 
continual presence of the ephemeral, ungraspable nature of a boundless mind that is our life. And everything that flows through are all the dreams. So we apply it to time. Time is always here, we know that. It appears to go, it appears to stay, it appears to to come. Breath is time. The boundless mind, the unborn mind, the mind of awakening is no place other than the awareness that we have right this moment. And the elusive thing is while we know we are aware without a shadow of a doubt, we can't find the awareer. This is one aspect of Zazen. This is one aspect that by seeing the dreamlike nature of our problems and seeing the dreamlike nature of our circumstance, we can meet them as they are without a whole lot of self-interest. One of the Chinese teachers says that if you are practicing without self-interest, then you just take whatever circumstance arises and just do your best. And you're happy to work with inadequate inadequate things. Because it's not about the, the personal improvement project. It's just about wholeheartedly engaging, breath after breath, with what is. On another side, things do not come from nothing. So clouds and water, <coughs> clouds <coughs> do not come from nothing. They come from molecules and dust. Clouds are born when these things come together. They die when they're blown apart. All things are made up of something else. This life of ours, this ephemeral life of ours, is born when all this marvelous concatenation of causes and conditions all come together. And our little self-will is only a tiny part of that. And we can't see the moment at which all of this interweaving, the whole web of life, comes together for our life. And we can't see how the whole web of life is present And we can't see where the whole web of life goes as things pass away. When our mind is not busy making up stories and we are simply present with this dream, timelessly, things appear and disappear. This is the Heart Sutra that we've been chanting every day. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. 
feeling, thought, and choice, consciousness itself, are the same as this. Now, just to wrap this up and put that in perspective, Hakuin always has some great things to say about this sort of stuff. Because if you get too philosophical about it, then it's just more mind entangling. So Hakuin is very good at looking at these issues of existence and non-existence and time and no time and form and emptiness and, in a way, putting them in their place. Look what Hakuin says. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness no other than form. A nice kettle of hot stew. He ruins it by dropping in a couple of rat turds. It's no good pushing delicacies at a man with a full belly. Striking aside waves to look for water when water are the waves. And he says, forms don't hinder emptiness. Emptiness is the tissue of form. Emptiness isn't destruction of form. Form is the flesh of emptiness. Inside the Dharma gates where form and emptiness are not two, a lame turtle with painted eyebrows stands in the evening breeze. It's an interesting image. A lame turtle with painted eyebrows stands in the evening breeze. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Hakuin says, rubbish. A useless collection of junk. Don't be trying to teach apes to climb trees. These goods have been gathering dust in the shelves for 2,000 years. Master he, C sits in his fishing boat wringing water from his line. I think that's a reference to uh, a teacher who would, uh, during one of the persecutions of Buddhism, hit out as a fisherman. But he would fish without using a hook. And so he would sit and fish and just encounter people as he was fishing. That was the place of his teaching. It is the same for sensation, perception, conception, and consciousness. Hakuin says, just look at him now, wallowing in the sow grass. If you pass these strange apparitions without alarm, they self-destruct. Snow Buddhas are terrible eyesores when the sun comes out. You certainly won't see strange things like this around my place. Earth, wind, fire, and water are tracks left when a bird takes flight. Form, sensation, perception, conception are sparks in the eye. A stone woman works a a shuttle, a weaving shuttle. Skinny elbows flying. A mud cow barrels through the surf, barring her teeth. Shariputra, all things are empty appearances. Hakuin says, it's like rubbing your eyes to make yourself see flowers in the air. If all things don't exist to begin with, what do we want with empty appearances? He's defecating and spraying pee all over a clean yard. The earth, its rivers and hills are castles in the air. Heaven and hell are boogie bazaars, boogie bazaars atop the ocean waves. The pure land and the impure world are brushes of turtle hair. Turtles have no hair. Nirvana and samsara, riding whips carved from rabbit horn. And lastly, therefore I preach the wisdom of Prajna Parapita Mantra. Well, what have we been doing up till now? 
like having a teetotaler forcing wine down your throat. You don't get the real taste of the drink swilling cup after cup. Unable to return for ten full years, you forget the way you came. He preached it once, now he trots it out again, snowdrifts accumulating over accumulated snowdrifts. There isn't any place you can hide and escape it. So who's the wine for? We're all already drunk to the gills. Hakuin is so good at taking all of this, all these words and just saying, you know, they're not important. What's important, drop it all. It's all fantasy. What's important is... Which is our zazen? Nonetheless, because we're using words, Mr. Gardada says this. Whatever name you give it, or steady purpose or one-pointedness of the mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, and honesty. When you are in dead earnest, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. You don't waste time and energy on other things. When you're totally dedicated, call it will or love or just plain honesty. We are complex beings at war within and without. We contradict ourselves all the time, undoing today the work of yesterday. No wonder we're stuck. If you just have integrity, it will make all the difference. So please, have integrity, wholeness, and turn everything that happens into zazen. Turn every state of mind into zazen. Turn everyone we encounter, every circumstance, into zazen and respond wholeheartedly.